If you are between the ages of four years old to the second grade, you are excused to kids club. My name is Ben Killerlane, if we have not met. There, it amazes me. I still look around, and there are lots of you I still haven't met. I, I've been the pastor here for the last, I guess, five months. Um, it's been great. My wife's looking at me. Is that wrong? Is my math bad? April, May, June, July, August, September. Six months. Now, I've got to say, in the last six months, I've experienced spring, summer, and now fall. And the weather here is incredible. I mean, this is awesome. I mean, nobody told me. I mean, three seasons have been fantastic. Of course, I only got a couple of days of spring and a couple of fall so far. So we'll see what happens. We moved here from the south. Snow will be a little new to most of my family, but we're really excited. Um, this morning, we sang in Christ alone. Uh, we sang it last week. It is actually my great hope that we'd sing it most of the weeks of this series. We're walking through the book of Ephesians through a series called Rooted in the Gospel. What does it really, really mean to root your life in the gospel? What does it really mean for the gospel to take such a deep and a significant root in your life that it permeates everything? This term in Christ shows up 56 times in the book of Ephesians. Finding yourselves in Christ is the necessity of the Christian life. We've kind of joked a little bit that as you work through this book, it, there's a, a divide in the, from the first three chapters to the second three. And the, the first three, there's a lot of indicatives. What an indicative means is it declares something about you. As you walk through the first three chapters, there actually it tells you very little of what to do. That if you're wanting to know what does the Christian life mean, what do I do, it doesn't answer any of those questions for you yet. The first three declare who you are. And the reality of the gospel, if you don't know who you are, what to do is absolutely unnecessary. Because if we make the gospel, if we make following Jesus all about what we're supposed to do, then we've missed the heart and the nature of the gospel. Ephesians will get to imperatives. The last three chapters are full of, in light of what, who you are, how then should a Christian live? And we'll get there. But the first three chapters are indicatives. They tell you who you are. They root you deeply in a fundamental and a biblical understanding of what a Christian is. And as we've walked through this book, it's tried to make it pretty clear to you that your past is taken care of in Jesus Christ. That if you've accepted Jesus Christ, if you've believed the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, according to Ephesians 1.13, that you've been included into the body of faith. And having had that happen, God wants you to know that he chose you before the beginning of time. Why? So that he can make it abundantly clear that you're not a mess up. That nothing you could ever do could tear you apart from his love. Before you could even blow it, he wanted you. Before you could do anything awesome, he wanted you. And he wanted to make it abundantly clear that having, you may have thought you could have messed all of that up, 
But he wants you to know in the present time that you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you're redeemed. So as much as you can sin, and unmistakably we're called away from sin, but as much as you can sin, it's forgiven in the blood of Jesus. So that you could come here this morning wondering if a holy God could accept you because of what you did yesterday. The answer in Jesus Christ is absolutely he loves you. Absolutely he desires to be in fellowship with you. Despite what you did last night. Or this morning. Or Wednesday. Or what you'll do later today or tomorrow. Your future is taken care of in the gospel. We walk through that in chapter 1. And Paul hones it in and wants you to know that as he's praying for this Ephesian church and ultimately praying for you, the three great things he wants you to have in your pocket to really know that it means to know God well. He wants to pray in the first part that you would know him better. He prays that you would understand the hope that you have. To know that this life is not all that there is but to know that God is not done working in you yet. So if you have a sin in your life, you have a struggle, and you wonder, is this it? Will I always carry that burden? The answer is, God is still working in you. And he has a power. Paul prays that we'd come to understand this incredible power that is in us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in our lives. And he wants us to know this glorious inheritance we are to him, that he values us so much. As we turned into chapter 2 last week, he gets to these two really critical taproots of the gospel. These two critical, critical elements that we all have to have some understanding of. The first of which is to get a really firm grasp that our sin, all of it, entirely separates us from the gospel, that there is no such thing as good enough. It's funny, I was trying to work through illustrations to come up with this. How do I illustrate that you can't be good enough? And I'm, I'm always fascinated by people's experiences because there are some people who live into their 50s and 60s and people say, that's a really good man. And yet it's easy for us to go, well, yeah, but you can see sin in his life. All of us are sinners. But my three-year-old decided to illustrate that at breakfast this morning. Sometimes we can look around at little kids and go, are little kids sinners? If you don't know that, I'll loan you any three of my children. <laughs> if you want to know if a one-year-old is capable of sin, borrow Claire. It'll take her two and a half minutes. This morning, we're getting ready for breakfast, and my sweet, loving bride decides to give my kids their milk glasses. Now, she hands Anna Kate, my three-year-old, the wrong milk cup. You really would have thought she, like, burned her hand or something. By her response, you would have thought she stole her bunny and burned it. She lost it because her mom handed her the wrong milk cup. And you just go, my three-year-old is a sinner through and through and through and in need of the saving grace of Jesus. My one-year-old is worse. <laughs> We're all sinners. 
All of us. This morning as we gathered as a praise team, I was just praying for us and just realizing that there's not a person who stands up here who's adequate. There's not one of us who gets to get on stage that's nailing it in life right now. We really do want you to know that. We're not awesome. We're just a group of people that Jesus has saved. That Jesus has done a tremendous work overcoming our sin. And that's true of all of us. It becomes such a necessary taproot of the gospel because when we really understand the depravity of our sin and that our best day we're a ridiculous, depraved sinner, when we really get that, we stop judging other people. We stop viewing other people exclusively by their sin. And it's necessary for us to get the gospel. Because when we really, really, really identify with the ridiculousness of our sin, then we really, really need a Savior. For whom much is forgiven, there'll be much love. When you understand God has forgiven you greatly, you appreciate him more. When you understand the reality and the depths and the depravity of your sin, in verse 4 of chapter 2, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. There is a richness to that phrase. Because you understand that what you brought to the gospel was deadness. And what can a dead man accomplish? Nothing. You were made alive in Jesus Christ. As we turn into 2 verses 11 through 22 where we'll spend our time this morning, Paul wants to continue on rooting us in the necessity of the gospel. And he says this in 2.11, Therefore remember. He starts off with this phrase connecting it. One of the things we have to keep in mind as we read in our study our Bibles is God did not write these things in little phrases. They're not little fortune cookie things for us to have. It's a letter. He wrote it to us in entirety. When we started this, I challenged you to consider reading the book of Ephesians in its entirety once a week. I hope you'll consider doing that and you'll continue doing that because this is all connected. It's, it's one connective idea. Therefore, remember. He's taking you back to remembering what it was like before Christ. He's taking you back to remembering separation from Christ. Remember that at once... Remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the hands, made in the flesh by hands. Remember at one time, you that, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Let's take a quick poll. Who just went, yes, circumcision? Who's excited to talk about this morning? Here's an interesting thing about the scriptures. When you come to this word Gentiles, you, you need to have an understanding of what this word is in Greek. The word in Greek for Gentiles is ethne. Is that a familiar word to you? Ethne? Ethnic? Ethnicity? 
The word nations is really the idea here. When it comes to the nations, you need to appreciate that the word for Gentiles, the word for pagans, and the word for the nations are actually the exact same word. They're just used differently. And when he's painting this picture, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, he's wanting to lay out a pretty clear distinction that's kind of hard for some of us to grasp. He's wanting these people to realize at one time they were far off from God. And not just far off from God. You need to appreciate, we need to step back to what it would have been like in the first century. Because as these people are coming to know Jesus, you have Jewish people who have had a distinct relationship with God, who have, who have owned God, who have said God is our God. But worse than that, the Jewish people made everyone else distinctly different. So when it gets to the point of saying in the flesh, they were Gentile in the flesh, he's pointing out that they were not good enough because of their skin. Because of their ethnicity, they were not good enough for God. You were called the earth in circumcision by what is called the circumcision. You understand this is a ridicule statement. He's wanting them to know that when they're called Gentiles, that wasn't a compliment. That these people who had a covenant with God were defining other people by their lack of covenants. Yesterday, I had the great opportunity to marry Brittany McBain and Reed Montgomery in this church. It was a great ceremony. In the middle of it, we exchanged rings. I'm trying to take mine off. It's not working. Less salt, more water. Got it. A ring is a sign of a covenant. Now just for a minute, if you're married, I want you to think about your ring. What if all of us ring wearers got together and we started mocking all the non-ring wearers? We are the ring wearers. You stink. You're not good enough. God will never accept you. That's kind of what's happening. There are people who lived within a covenant, mocking and ridiculing people who were not in a covenant. Now for a minute, you have to appreciate the power of what's starting to get said here. That if you are of a person who has ridiculed your whole life for the color of your skin, for your ethnicity, you are made to feel as if you were not worth God, God's attention, God's affection, God's love, or God's family. You are far removed. You are on the outside. There'd be an oppressive weight there, wouldn't there? See, we don't always appreciate that when we come to passages like this. We don't appreciate what it would have had to come for a Gentile to walk into a room of people who had previously hated him, who'd previously mistreated him, who'd previously made him feel so unworthy of their experience. And that's exactly what's happening. Paul's trying to call them back to remember what it was like to just be a Gentile, to remember what it was like to be mocked by the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. It was a human distinction. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
And he's wanting to take them back to this place where they were so outside and outcast the family of God that he wants to make it clear that they know not only was the color of their skin different, but they weren't in God's family. They weren't good enough. They weren't pure enough. They weren't able to enter into a covenant with God. They had no hope and they had no God. Remember what that was like? If you were a Gentile in the first century, hearing that would elicit all kinds of pain from you. All kinds of unworthiness. All kinds of realities. So when you get to first, verse 13, having been reminded of all these cosmic differences and all the reasons why you're unworthy of the gospel, verse 13 stands out. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the second big, formerly now contrast in this book. You want to know what difference Jesus Christ makes in your life? There are two huge ones in Ephesians. The first, you're dead before you met him. You're alive after knowing him. You're dead prior to knowing Jesus. You are alive says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's alive. That's the difference that Christ makes. But here's the second one. God does something incredible in Christ Jesus. He brings you near. God moves to you. And if nearness is not something that you appreciate, let me help you with an Old Testament understanding of nearness. You understand nearness? Little kids. My three-year-old understands nearness. She wants to be near her daddy. When Anna Kate is near her daddy, she's safe. She's protected. When Anna Kate is near her daddy, she knows she's loved. It's nearness. In Psalm 73, Asaph is listing off some struggles, some shortcomings. He's totally overwhelmed by the challenges of his life. And in Psalm 73, at the end of working through these challenges, by the way, Psalms is a phenomenal book. My hope is that we'll spend some time there next summer in Psalms. But at the end of working through all these struggles, at the, in verse 28, he concludes all of this by saying, God, your nearness is to me my good. God, your nearness is my good. That of all the things in the world I could have, your nearness is my good. It's to understand that God is his shepherd. It's an incredible statement to appreciate God's nearness. In Christ, God didn't move just a little bit closer to you. You became his. He shepherds over you. 
You're like the three-year-old clinging to his dad. A little while ago, we sang Draw Me Close. And there's an image up there, and there's a picture, and there's a big hand, and there's a little hand. The fascinating thing is for you to consider which hand was yours. You are the little hand. You are the little one clinging to your daddy. That's you. We always think we're the big hand. That's the mistake we make. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And again, if you're in the first century, this means the world to you. And in the 21st century, we don't understand it, really. What is this great dividing wall of hostility? It means that God took these people who felt worthy of God, and he saved them. He brought them to himself in Christ. You'll find he brings those that are near, peace. He brings those that are far, peace. Why? Because we both needed Jesus. And he takes this group of people who are really far off, who had the wrong skin color, who had the wrong daddy, who made the wrong mistakes, who had no hope, brought them into the same place and gave them the same faith. It's an extraordinary ecclesiological statement of the church. It means literally for us in the church that as we've come here in Jesus Christ, that we are the same. That God doesn't look at us differently. That if you were separated at Christ by the nature of being born and you came to know Jesus as a two-year-old and you've walked with him faithfully your whole life and you never did more than steal animal crackers from your brother prior to knowing salvation, you were near to Jesus your whole life, you don't remember days, you didn't know his name, that's awesome. And here you are before a holy God. And if you're a prostitute who sells drugs and her kids to buy more drugs and you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Redeemer, you are not different before a holy God. He's redeeming all of us. It's not just that we're all unworthy. It's that he's redeeming all of us and making us one. I read a story a couple weeks ago about a former Al-Qaeda operative who started realizing the holes in the Quran that made him walk away from Islam. And in the middle of that, found Jesus. That guy could walk into our assembly and be one with us. It's a beautiful picture of what the church ought to be. It means that amongst us, there can be no enmity. We don't get to look at other people and say, you're not worthy of God. None of us are. We all are worthy of Jesus. Because what he did for us at the cross valued us. And that in Jesus, he makes us one. Now the challenging part of this passage, the challenging part that we absolutely have to get our mind around is that the Jews made colossal mistakes in how they treated the Gentiles. 
See, the Jewish people walked so far away from the Gentiles because they were so afraid that they would be tainted, that it would make them unholy. So they started abusing and mistreating these people because they didn't want to get close to them. Would you believe the church does the same thing? That it's possible for some of us to walk around like we're part of this exclusive club that the rest of the world could never join? That we're part of this really great club and man, if you had the right daddy, you could have gotten in. Man, if your dad would have come to church, we could have invited you, it would have been great. But because of where you're born, whew, no shot. We can be just as guilty about creating dividing walls of hostility today and putting people on the outside. That because of your profession, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to talk to you. Because of where you walk, where you work, because of the color of your skin, I'm not engaging you. Do you see how the gospel tears all of those away and makes us one? The dividing wall of hostility was torn down by the flesh of Jesus Christ because he died for our sin. And he died for our prejudices. And he died for our racism. And he died for every aspect of us that is sinful and that would keep other people from coming to know him. And so for us to rightly apply this passage... For us to walk out and to remember who we are is to walk in the reality that we are all, by nature, sinners saved by grace. And so when we walk out on the street and we engage other people who wonder if they could be accepted by a holy God, the example of our life that we want to put out there has got to be that God saves sinners. And he wants you to be a part of his kingdom. And he wants you to be a part of his plan. There's nobody, nobody so far from his reach. There's nobody he can't grab. There's nobody he couldn't bring into his kingdom and sit in our front row. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter who they are. There's nobody having come to Christ we shouldn't welcome in our church. Nobody. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's making one man, the church. God is forming a church that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. One action. It's the cross that justifies us. It's the cross that allows any of us to be welcome to God. And it's made accessible to anybody who would accept Jesus. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
God did a great work in reconciling us to himself. And the fascinating thing about it is how God is a redeemer. Because if we walk backwards to this passage, and we go back to the top of it a little bit, and you start to realize that in 11 and 12, what he wants you to remember, to remember that you and the flesh were not worthy, to recognize that in Jesus Christ, you are. To recognize that before Christ, you were separated from him. And in Jesus Christ, you walk in an intimate companioned fellowship with the Son, the creator of our world. You get to walk in a unique and an intimate relationship with that guy. That you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Literally, he's trying to tell them, you had no family. And in Jesus Christ, you have a family. In Jesus Christ, you have a family. Now, for some of you, that doesn't make that big of a deal for. Because I know that there are some families in this church that the church membership in your family tree look a lot alike. And so you could feel like, oh, oh, good family, this is great. But there's some of you who have come to know Christ. You're the first person in your family. You're the first generation. You don't know what family really looks like. You don't know who you're going to spend Christmas with. Because you don't know what Christmas looks like without everyone getting drunk. We had the opportunity in Memphis to work at a college ministry and to start redeeming holidays. And it was fascinating the number of college students who spent Easter with us because they had nowhere else to go. Because nobody wanted to celebrate the resurrection of a risen Savior. This is your family, the church. God has given it to you. You want to know what a difference Jesus Christ makes? In Christ, you have a family, it's the church. And we're it. We are your brothers and we are your sisters. If you've got family and you go, man, they're not dependable. Man, look at the church. We'll be dependable for you. You get sick and need some soup? Call one of us. Literally, call one of us. That's why we're here. If you go to the hospital and you want to know who's going to come visit me, call us. We are your family. We want to be there for you. We want to come around you. In Jesus Christ, you have a family. Strangers to the covenants of promise. In Jesus Christ, you are covenanted to God. He will never ever let you go. Jesus said, I will not lose a single one of the ones you've given me. I won't lose them. That means on the darkest night, if you've claimed Jesus Christ as your Savior, he doesn't let go of you. You're covenanted to him. Before Jesus, you had no hope. In Jesus, you have a tremendous hope in this world and in the next. 
prior to Jesus, you were without a God. And in Jesus, you absolutely have a God. God did an incredible thing, redeeming us in Jesus Christ. He makes it clear in 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So that if you've walked in here this morning and you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior and you wonder if you belong here, the answer is an unequivocal yes. Absolutely you do. You wonder if a holy God could accept you into this body and into fellowship with people who could be your family. The answer is an unequivocal yes. You are not a stranger or an alien. You're not a foreigner, as if we should shove you to the outside. And if, by some chance, you should feel like you're on the outside. Maybe you've been coming for a couple of weeks or months, dare I say years, and you don't feel known in our family. Please, come talk to us about that. You are our family. You are not a stranger. You're not an alien. You are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is an ecclesiological, that's a church, that's what ecclesiology, I like to use big words. Ecclesiology, study the church. Ecclesiological, it's about the church. This is a colossal ecclesiological statement about us. That what God is doing amongst us in our foundation is he's taking a lot of us who are sinners and he's redeeming us. And he's forming something incredible amongst us. And he's building us into a body. He's building us into a church. He's forming something. Imagine this is like one of those slow motion Lego videos where the Legos are going. That's what he's doing. With our foundation being the apostles and the prophets, what does that mean? It's this book. We're going to look at Paul's writings. We're going to look at Peter's writings. And we're going to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. We're going to look at the apostles and the disciples' writings. And we're going to study them because they're our foundation. But the cornerstone of who we are is absolutely Jesus Christ. Because he's the one that saves every one of us in whom the whole structure being joined, joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord so that we would be a great and bright and glowing house in this community so that if Moorhead or Fargo or Dilworth or Holly or wherever you're from wants to know what a holy God looks like, they could look at Calvary. And they could look at you. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God 
by the Spirit. In Jesus Christ, he's building something with us. He's doing something great with us. In Jesus Christ, he's building a church built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. If we walk through this whole passage, what it tells you is that there aren't second-class citizens in the kingdom. There aren't got there and barely made it. There aren't awarded citizens. Has it ever occurred to you that when God looks at you and Billy Graham, he's not like, yeah, Billy Graham, all right. Oh, no question, Billy Graham's been faithful. No question about that at all. But God doesn't look at Billy Graham's faithfulness and go, yes. God looks at the work of Jesus Christ to save Billy Graham. That's the greater work. That's what he's doing in your life. It's funny having worked with college students and taking them overseas. We would sit down with people and we'd say, we want you to share your testimony. We want you to learn how to share your testimony. Someday we'll get a group of us together and we'll start a process of taking people overseas. But we'll look at what does it mean to share your testimony? And it's fascinating the number of people who say, well, I don't have a really good testimony. Like, I don't, it's not that great. Process that for a second, people. What is your testimony about? Is it about you? Is it about the great work that you've done with your life? That's called a biography. A lot of people write them. They sell lots of them in stores. But your testimony is about the work of Jesus Christ in your life. What did you bring to it, according to Ephesians? Deadness. What did God bring to it? Aliveness. So if you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you didn't have to steal cookies. You didn't have to steal cars. You didn't have to drop bombs anywhere to have a significant testimony. You had to be saved. Jesus had to take you and redeem you from your sin. And friends, that should be all of us. The work of a testimony is sharing the incredible work that Jesus Christ has done in all of our lives. That's the significant part. That's being rooted in a gospel that we understand that we're sinners and we understand that God has saved us. And that's the root and the nature of the gospel. Paul is trying to drive home to these people in the second part of chapter 2 that they once felt far off and Jesus redeemed it all. The challenge for us in this passage is if we feel like we are far off from the Lord to know that in Jesus Christ we have been brought near. We've been brought near. The first imperative that's shown up in this whole text is remember. You want to know the action that you're supposed to take from this text? Remember. That's your action verb. Remember that you were once far off and that in Jesus Christ, you have been brought near and he's weaving you into a family That's the church. And that the church is going to be built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is going to be Jesus. God is still at work 
saving sinners. And I believe he's going to continue to use it. And I believe he's going to continue to use Calvary in a great way to do it. Let me pray. Father, we love you. We love you so much. And we are so thankful for the work of Jesus Christ. That at the cross, where he went willfully, he paid the price for my sin. He paid the price for all of our sins. Father, there's not one here this morning that was especially worthy of what you did at the cross. In fact, all of us sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And it's such a freeing statement because we start to realize we can't perform. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. That by your death and your resurrection, you give us a tremendous hope that every aspect of our life could be resurrected. And that in Jesus Christ, we who once did not have a family and did not have covenants and did not have hope and did not have a God, that in Jesus Christ, you have woven us into a family and you've woven us into a covenant and you're building your church on the teachings of the prophets and the apostles. Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Thank you for still being at work Thank you for still using us. And thank you for using this church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.